Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, what a beautiful house as well. Well, flat house. I don't know how you'd... You'd call it a flat, wouldn't you? Define um, it, but absolutely gorgeous, Hank. Full of history. You can see everywhere there's mm. signs of life and music and art. And Well, this is... Uh, years ago, this is why I don't own any property in England, uh, because uh, I moved into this flat in 74, um, and it was a private let. And then the housing trust bought the house. So I've been a housing trust tenant ever since. So you've been um, in this house 45 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, long time. Well, I'm from Camden Town. That's the, Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I love Camden Town. I'm, I'm not from around these parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've climbed your way up. I've, 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 I've moved across. Oh, I've been, <laughs> I've, I've been around I've been in South Kent for a while. Uh, um, but, yeah, it's been a long time being here. Because, like I say, you know, you've got the kids outside playing out in, in yeah. Power Square. The Tabernacle's the other side of Power Square. It's a very lively, um, lively part of the world, in spite of the fact that all the rich folks moved in and have been moving in and the property values are just Rocketed, stupid. yeah. Stupid. Well, all the property values in all of London are stupid. Um, I know of a flat that is currently on the market for um, £9,000 a month. Unbelievable, obscene. Yeah, you know. Um, oh yeah, these these are lovely old buildings. They're old Victorian uh, Dickensian 
1860. It's the high ceiling for me high that ceiling, does it. It yeah. feels very grand. And I love this street in particular is just a wash of beautiful pastel, like rainbow colours. You've yeah. got a yellow front, right? Next door's yeah, purple. Yeah, yeah, we got a bright yellow front because beautiful. Uh, we couldn't agree on the colour. Last <laughs> The previous one was a kind of tasteful green. But my downstairs neighbour thought he, it reminded him of cabbage. Uh, and I think he had a bit <laughs> so of a So you want banana on. instead? Yeah. Well, no, we just could we, He wanted a blue, but he wanted sort of a pale blue. blue. And I, I was, I took the attitude, well, if you had a blue, let's have a David Hockney blue. You know, the real bright, deep Mediterranean blue. Blah, you know, blast it out. Um, let's get West Indian about it. You know, yeah, let's yeah. have really bright colours. And no, he didn't want that. And it was one of those after having gone through the green and the blue and not the blue, and, the, and we'd had r- sort of a rusty colour before that. And it was like, what about yellow? Oh, all right, whatever. You know, and so we all shrugged our shoulders, put our finger, well, that one, yeah, okay, whatever. And when it came, it's really bright yellow. It's like the sun. Oh, I yeah. like it. But it's great. Yeah, we like it too now, but it wasn't, it was, no way was that the colour we would have chosen. But hey, it chose us. And so now we're the yellow house. In the sunshine house. In the sunshine house, yeah. So where did, where did you grow up, Hank? Where were you sort of born and raised? I grew up in Camden, Camden Town. That was where you were born and raised, right in the uh, I was born in, in uh, actually in Welling, in a place called Brockett Hall, which is an old stately home. Right. Uh, Queen Victoria used to go and visit there. So the recent TV series of Victoria, which I never saw, apparently there's lots of uh, sequences of her going to Brockett Hall. And it's a stately home and it's very flash. Uh, and in the 30s, it was bought by a hideous bloke called Lord Brockett, who was a Nazi, you know, which wasn't surprising because a lot of the aristos at that time were Nazis. But he was a particularly nasty Nazi and he was a real card carrying Nazi. So he was the full blown homophobic racist. Absolutely, Bigoted. the whole thing, you know, Nasty and Hitler was, a, Hitler was a jolly good chap. In fact, in, 19, in April 39, you know, when everybody knew there was something afoot, yeah. you know, and uh, things were not too good, he and his mate, the Duke of Buccleuch, went over to Berlin uh, to celebrate their mate Adolf's 50th birthday. So they were kind of that close into it all. And when war broke out, um, he knew that the government were onto him and that they were going to requisition this house uh, and, and put squaddies in it. And to avoid the squaddies and their muddy boots and to appear magnanimous, he uh, said, oh, let's make it... A, he gave it over as a maternity house. A maternity building. So I was born in the Blitz, right, right at the height of the Blitz. And British intelligence, as usual, got it wrong. And they th- had heard that the Luftwaffe were going to erase London on this particular night and that's when I was going to get born so my mum was evacuated out to Hertfordshire yeah yeah um, and had me there um, which was a nice irony uh, and in fact they didn't it didn't erase London but that was the night they destroyed Coventry I'm from Birmingham just down the road yeah oh, Solihull so Warwickshire it, so area it was yeah. the, the morning of in the retaliation 15th. for Dresden was it yeah. was it yeah. yeah it was the morning of the 15th of November 1940 that they wiped Coventry off the map and um, And it's still never recovered from that you can still see the the poverty and the yeah yeah and that was on the night of the full moon the blood moon um and that was the the day that you came into the world I came into the world and I was that has a nice kind of blues mythology yeah and I was a uh, uh, my mum who every time I'd take a girl back home 
uh, and she'd look her up and, and, and find why she was not good enough for me, you know, because basically no one was good enough for me except my mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, she was one of those mothers. Um, and she'd go into the story of, oh, he was such a long baby. He was, you know, it took so long to get born. And I go, oh, here we go again. And we get this whole story. And then when she was about 80, she said, and it was doing the same thing, and said, and then they got the forceps. And I go, the what? She says, the forceps. What forceps? Oh, you were a forceps baby, hon. I did not, did not tell you. Did you not tell me? No, you never tell. You told me the story of my birth a hundred times. Never. So apparently, yeah, forceps. So I'm dragged out of my mum while Coventry's being uh, bombed to pieces uh, in a Nazi stately home, and my mum and dad were communists. So talk about irony. That's know. like the opening scene of a film, right yeah, there, isn't it? Yeah. So they were both card-carrying, passionate, dedicated oh, communists. He was on the Central Committee of the British Communist Party. He was the chief sub-editor of the Daily Worker. And she worked um, and taught English at the Soviet embassy. So, so yeah, right in there. None more communist than that. So were you raised with a very sort of heightened aware of politics? Yes, and also a ra- as much that as, as, as raised in a kind of parallel universe. That you're, you're raised, and you're raised very definitely, that you know there are two different kinds of people. There's good people and bad people. Good people are communists and Russians. Bad people are Americans and Catholics. And the Catholic thing came in because my mum was from Glasgow. You know, right. Glasgow was more sectarian yeah, than, yeah. than Belfast. And because they weren't religious. If you're not religious in Glasgow, you're Protestant. Uh, you're only Catholic in Glasgow if you're Catholic. So as you're Protestant, I always remember my auntie Jean that I would stay with up in Glasgow would talk about the Catholic family next. Well, they're very friendly to them, the McCartneys, who were great who were a little world in themselves, and you say, oh, that Aggie, that Aggie, she's a good enough girl for a Catholic. Huh? You know? It's ingrained, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh, you're just born completely. to hate. The Carnies were great, because Bill, who was this little guy, and he, terrible pneumoconiosis, and that was one thing which really politicised me, was he had pneumoconiosis. No, he has silicosis, Right where the, the lung disease, the destruction of your lungs through being down the mines, down, down the pits all your life, uh, was from a very high silica content to the coal. So guess what? He didn't get a disability allowance because he had the wrong kind of coal-related lung disease. So, And you, you knew at the age of 14 something very wrong is going on here, you know. He's, he's given his life, he's given his body to being down the pit. And he's not getting an allowance, you know, what's it all about? So he's a little guy. Uh, and it turns out he was a communist as well. I knew that my family were communists. And his wife, Sadie, and the eight kids were all Catholics. So round Hogmanay, Bill would get pissed and he'd stand on a, a, a chair and he'd put his arms around me and he'd say, Come on, Sam, come on, you and me. We'll sing the British working man and say, Fuck with you on papists. And there we go, shh, Bill, Bill, shh, remember the Virgin Mary? Oh, fuck the Virgin Mary, come on, let's sing the red flag. I love it. So you were saying a moment ago that your parents thought uh, the only good people were communists and Russians. Yeah. What did they then think of Stalin and the way he took well, that uh, movement? that's a good question because um, they loved Stalin. Really? Um, I loved Stalin, you know, because, and, and it was a very strange uh, family. Um, they had, listen, we've all got strange families. Ain't that uh, the my, truth? But my particular strange family was that um, my mum 
um, had an affair with one of the uh, one of her pupils at the Soviet embassy. Um, very handsome man, uh, Piotr. Uh, and I remember when I was about four, um, him coming round to the house and her saying, "Say hello to your uncle Piotr." <laughs> oh. Hello, Uncle Piotr, you're handsome. Uh, anyway, she had an affair uh, about five years later with one of my dad's colleagues on The Daily Worker. So this is a scandal within right, yeah, yeah. the Communist Party. Of course. And she got pregnant and she had Jim, who's my younger brother. And he was raised for five years from the age of me being 11 up to 16 as my dad's son. And I didn't know that you my didn't dad know knew oh, that you... he wasn't his son. Okay. And instead of, you know, people who should get divorced stay together for the sake of the children. No, my family stayed together for the sake of the British Communist Party. For the sake of the party. Because the party said, you can't split up because the scandal would rock the party. Yeah. You know, that you got pregnant by Fred Pateman and he's your dad's colleague and, you know, oh, and it would be terrible. And so, no, you've got to stay together and Jim has got to be raised as J James Hutt, not as James... It's just so stupid. Did that create animosity between uh, your parents, or...? Yeah, yeah, you, you spotted it. Of course it did. Uh, they weren't happy together. Um, and Stalin came in because... I had a picture of Stalin on the kitchen wall. I've just re re recently written a song called Uncle Joe. I'm getting great pleasure in getting people in the audience to sing the chorus, which goes, Uncle Joe, you're so kind. You can tell it by the smile and the twinkle in your eye. Um, and they all kind of... We, I mean, we did a gig in Tring, which is fairly strongly Tory <clears throat> a commuter belt, and um, getting all of them singing Uncle Joe, You're So Kind. Delicious but, irony once again. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, where Kevin, who plays the bass with us, would Uncle have... Uncle Joe, the, of course, for people listening, if they're not aware, I presume is, is Stalin. Is, uh, Joe Stalin. Yeah, yeah, Joe yeah. Stalin was Uncle Joe. The thing, the thing about him was that he was Uncle Joe... Uh, he was a czar to Soviet Russia. He was in every way. As, he, he was actually beyond a czar. He was a holy figure. It was a religion. Stalinism had become a religion while denying all other religions. So he was this, you know... Well, it was the same process of indoctrination and, yeah, yeah, and worship, wasn't it? And yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there was this particular picture, which you'll have seen at yeah, some yeah. point, where he does have a twinkle in his eye and he's got this avuncular moustache. Fine, mustache. bushy moustache, yeah. You, you know you can trust him. And I genuinely did. And within the unhappiness of the family and the unhappiness of being a teenager during the Cold War and, and hoping that your mates didn't find out you're, you're communist because if they do, they're going to beat you up. And they did, and they did. Um, you felt fairly separate it was a separate kind of existence um, but there was Uncle Joe always looking after me so that's what the song's about is you know the, uh, the only person I could trust during the 50s was Uncle Joe Stalin <laughs> beyond irony that's a know, lonely place to be right yeah 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 it is um and how did you and, feel? And what happened was when, when in 56, 57, uh, there was uh, an attempted Hungarian revolution where they tried to break away from the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union sent in tanks and crushed. Uh, and that's what broke my family up. And for my mum, she perceived it as Soviet tanks crushing uh, a, a genuine bona fide revolution. And what my dad saw it as was the noble Soviet army coming in and crushing counter-revolutionaries. 
Keeping order. Keeping order. Yeah. And so they split up. And he stayed with Stalin to his dying day. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, he'd, he'd, he'd given his whole life to it. His whole belief system was, was wound around that. It was too painful for him to unravel it. Fred, who had also done that, actually managed to unravel and realised. And, you know, because by that time we'd had Khrushchev denouncing Stalin and saying, you know, well, maybe it was did a few fairly dodgy things. To say the least, yeah. It's fascinating to yeah. me, though. I did, um, I did Russian history at A-level at college. And did you? Yeah, yeah. Did you I, speak Russian? No, 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 no. But I, I found the, the history of that country is so fascinating because it's so big, it's almost so ungovernable mm. that that's why over the years there's been such violence, bloodshed, atrocities committed because it's... It's a whole other world from anything we know in the Western oh, civilization, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, totally different. Totally different. Crazy. So um, you studied at Cambridge, is that right? I studied medicine at Cambridge, yeah. And what was the inspiration there? Was that sort of a path that you followed from teenage years um, up with, with certain enthusiasm, or was it something more that you were pushed towards? How did you end up in that I, position? There was a lot of pushing, you know, um, I wasn't somebody who, at the age of 12, had this burning light and knew that is exactly what I wanted to do. So it wasn't like a calling or anything like that? No, it was just saying off the top of your head, oh, you know, oh, I'd like to be a bus driver, yeah, ha-ha, okay, bus driver. I want to be a this, yeah, ha-ha, I want to be a doctor. My son, the doctor! He's going to be a doctor. Did you know he's going to be a doctor? Uh, Am am I? Yeah, he's going to be a doctor, he's going to study medicine. Yeah, uh, okay, okay, all right. And you just kind of go along with it. And then you get to Cambridge, and which was great, you know, because... Uh, what year were you there from in the 59, until? 59 to 62. Wow. So right on the cusp of teenage revolution, I guess, just mm. pre-Beatles. Pre-Beatles, um, in, in the footlights. Oh, you were so, in footlights, were yeah, you? Yeah, in the footlights. So, wow. Anyone of notes well, in the... post-Peter Cook. Oh, great, um, wow. And, and pre-Monty uh, Python. Wow. So right, right in that... But I didn't do the Footlights show, the, the, the kind of the annual show. Okay. So, again, I was on the sidelines. But what I did do was uh, my f- roommate, I had rooms in, in John's college for two years, which was very lucky. Uh, and my roommate was kind of an entrepreneur. He was also a medical student, but he ran the local nightclub. We had a student nightclub on Saturday nights which shamefully was called Daddies. (laughs) (laughs) And I was the cabinet. I'd I'd do the songs. I'd I'd sing songs. And uh, Cambridge had a big... um, So in those days, a nightclub wouldn't necessarily be a DJ playing songs. It would actually be live singing. It'd be live live music, a live band, more often than not a jazz band. Cambridge modern jazz was very, very lively and very strong uh, and very snobby. Yeah. and I loved jazz, and I've gone back to loving jazz, but I had, I did get put off it by the snobbism. I mean, and there's a couple the of... The hierarchy and the... Well, I can tell you... Go on. There was that. Um, the most earth-shaking musical thing that happened to me was Ray Charles. Ray Charles more than rock and roll. You know, rock and roll was fantastic because it gave colour to the 50s. Yeah. Before rock and roll, they were completely black and monochrome. You know, they were just... The pop music was terrible. How much is that doggy in the window and all yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, shrimp boats is a coming, you know. Just just crap. Um, 
And I make a point of that now at some gigs. And if I, there's a song I'll sing from 1952, a country song uh, from Webb Pierce, which is fantastic, called uh, There Stands the Glass. Uh, I know that song. You know that song? Yeah. And it's a great song. And it's perfect country because it's simple. Very few words, like maybe five syllables to a line. Um, tells the story. Great tune about alcoholism. Yeah. You know, brilliant. There stands the glass. Fill it up to the brim till my troubles grow dim. It's th- my first one today. <laughs> you know, uh, really good. Yeah, um, poetry, isn't it? Poetry and and irony and uh, you know and everything, all, all those things that I found country music had once I'd I'd had my conversion. And I Ray, am the worst of all possible things. I am a convert. Was Ray Charles the guy with the country modern sounds and country and western? No, that album, came or later. It just, no, it was it, it was, was it was late fifties, and I'd I'd run away from home after this sort of horrible family broke up, um, and I started a third year six, and it was just wasting my time, and I and, and my mum and dad were fighting over me, and I I, I just couldn't be bothered, and I just ran away, and I ran off to Paris. At <clears> what age? Uh, that would have been fifty eight. So I was seventeen. What was that experience like? Uh, lonely. Yeah? Yeah, lonely. Paris is not a kind city. No. Um, but I got a, a little network of three sets of people. So I could DOS. I could kind of move my dossing. Uh, uh, Were you working to get money or anything like that? Or? I, was, I was scuffling. For about three months, I was scuffling. Um, so the only work I got ultimately was on the streets was with a a, a a painter an artist who would chalk in pictures and i'd color in the pictures for him and put edilige and peintre you know and you'd get enough for a steak and frit or yeah. something for the day uh, and there were nights where i slept under the bridges um so i was on the streets and it was not it was wasn't great you know it's got an edge even today that city i find yeah it's you but know, i love it yeah, yeah which, and it's also, dirty I, and romantic I, I, I isn't it all at once love the unkindness of the prison although this time i went over with the family and uh, they were really struck by how kind everybody was to the little children you know what can i say um when i was there it, it wasn't kind then i got a job um in a socialist tourist agency uh, called tourism et travail um, on on the uh, on, on on the desk, so I had to deal with Parisians, and so that's when I really got to know Parisians and how much they love to have a moan. They're nothing better than having a moan. So they'd come in and say, "Listen, you know, I came in, I came here to, to to go to Bulgaria, and you sent me to Czechoslovakia, you twat." And I'm saying, "Well, well, désolé, mais je croyais que c'était you know, and this all goes on. Um, character building stuff at that I age. I was character building stuff. But so I had a job and I had a little, I got a little room, Chambre de Bonne, right up on the top of the house at the end of the Boulevard Saint-Michel. So I mean, I was in hog heaven, really. Yeah. <coughs> and had a great time. Um, and that got me away from the family and, and I already had a place in Cambridge. So it was my year away. Then I left that and I travelled round... Uh, on a motorbike round Europe to go to Vienna to a youth festival again, communist. Youth I was festival. just in Vienna. Um, when was I in Vienna? Two months ago. <coughs> yeah, beautiful place. Yeah, loved it. The people yeah. there are really friendly. Oh yeah, really friendly. Yeah, it's really nice. 
that's the kind of place I could see myself when I'm about 60, maybe getting a little place, spending my days reading books in cafes. Yeah. I could see that going on. Getting that chocolate and that cream. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. The strudel. The strudel. Bigger and bigger. <laughs> you don't see many skinny people in Vienna, do you? No, you don't. Because no. <laughs> it's the good life. Yeah. So... When does Ray Charles hit? And well, how, Ray and Charles how does hit that in hit France. You? In France. In France. My, I've still got some, I've still got the vinyl of Ray Charles et les Relettes. Because he made it first in France before he made it in England. So in 1958, I hear Ray Charles. And you can imagine, what the fuck is that? You know, this voice, the, the rawness of the voice, the, the emotion of the voice was just astonishing. Um, and so loved him. So when, I, when I'd gone to Cambridge, I was a complete Ray Charles nut. I loved Ray. Wasn't in country music at all at that time. Uh, and in fact, when he did his modern sounds in country music, that was even too much for me. Ray, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray, what, what have you done? What, what are you doing, man? <laughs> uh, but all my jazz mates didn't like Ray Charles. Because he was too pop. No, because his, in his piano playing, he didn't play interesting enough notes. Right. They loved Horace Silver. So they're coming at it from an intellectual played, point of view yeah. and the emotions yeah. going over and, them. And, 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 you know, you know and I know that the first thing in music is emotion. Absolutely. Uh, when I first got into Indian music, Indian classical music, it was because it just hit me there. It's just like, what the fuck is this about? And you just listen to it and listen to it. Then you learn about it and you learn what the scales are based on and you learn what the rhythmic things are. Uh, and that adds to the, the love of it. But if you don't start with the emotion, there's nothing there. Yeah. Same with country music. Country music hits you in the face with its emotion. Bang, like that. And I think it's the, the unabashed hitting that makes it a bit too much for, certainly for some English and I say specifically English as opposed to Scottish, Scottish or, or Irish, Irish or Welsh. Because you know, Irish, you know. Well, uh, Celtic folk and country have so much in common, don't they? It's the classic one is... Songs you of know, heartbreak, some, some, success, right. failure. Yeah. That in England, it, it did happen from time to time that somebody would say, oh, come on, Hank, cheer up. You know, whereas in Ireland, the classic one is your man saying, oh, Jesus, Hank, that, that, that song there, that, that was sad. Have you got anything sadder? <laughs> <laughs> and genuinely, they'd say that. So yeah, you yeah. understand the Celtic soul yeah. is completely plugged into that, has no problem with it at all. But somehow this over-emotionality, in inverted commas, is too much for the English sensibility. Uh, and I loved it straight away. Well, I loved it straight away when I first heard it off uh, Grand Parsons, which is how I got converted. Mr. Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Mr. Sweetheart of the Rodeo, yeah. Who had come over to England, and that was when he was hanging out with uh, Keith Richards and taking unfeasible amounts of heroin. <laughs> well, let's not jump ahead, because I want to <laughs> no, know, no. know how you go from being a student of medicine at Cambridge University, which is all very proper and well-to-do, to becoming the rock and roll doctor okay. that you're perhaps now famous for. How does that transition happen? Does it happen whilst at university or no, is it in the I'd, years after? No, I finished university in 1962. Uh, I come down to London. Um, I, and are uh, you writing music at this point? Yeah, I, uh, writing songs pretty bad, you know. Um, and cabaret songs, funny songs, you know, amusing songs. Um, 
kind of Lonnie Donegan sort of stuff? Or Well, I started, I picked up a guitar in, in the Skiffle times, yeah, absolutely. I've just read Billy Bragg's Skiffle book, which is very good. Um, and that led me on to read Pete Frame's book too, about the 50s, which is equally very good. And that was uh, that was Billy's source material. Yeah, Skiffle uh, took loads of us in, or, you know... Or the Beatles as well, right? They the, started off... The Beatles, um, uh, Jimmy Page, you know, or... or uh, all of them, yeah. you know, everybody came in through Skiffle. Um, but that was that was 50s, that was 50s through late 50s. Um, in the 60s, I go to St George's, which is on High Park Corner, and that's where I did my clinical work. And then in 64... Didn't you train with one of the Queen's doctors or something? Or yeah, that it? came later. That was later on. 64, I get invited to uh, be the replacement cast in a show called Beyond the Fringe, which was huge, massive show that four uh, university graduates had done. And they, they were, you know, four geniuses, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller. I mean, come on, what a lineup! Um, and it was the first review without Dancing Girls, and it was the first, in quotes, satirical review. And it was very, very funny. And they all went to Broadway, and they did really well there. And when they went to Broadway, I was part of the replacement cast. Which so, guy did you take on the role of? A, a mix, sort of, of, a mix of Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller. Um, the Dudley Moore stuff was done by a guy who could play the piano, because there's some piano pieces. Um, wow. And we, we did that... Uh, I did that for eight months in the West End and my, the dean of my medical school let me off and said, right, that's OK, you know, that'll be good for you because it will make you a more complete human being and a complete doctor. That's OK, you can stop your medical studies now and just go off and concentrate that and then come back. So basically set me back a year. So I didn't qualify till late 67. Does life get any better than that, though, at that age? What? That do, experience do, of... Doing eight months in the West End, doing that. It was, again, very bizarre. <laughs> uh, but yes, it was great. It was great because that's that's what sixty, that's sixty four, um, and I was smoking huge amounts of dope at that right. time and and loving it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at that time in the sixties, when you smoked dope, it was a political action. You know, it was counterculture. It was yeah. counterculture. You were actually striking a blow for freedom. Yeah. Um, cosmic and personal and, and intellectual and cultural and all that. Um, but I couldn't tell the other three guys that I smoked huge amounts of dope. So actually... That, oh, it wasn't that, the whole that, cast were indulging together then. Absolutely it was... not. I actually managed to convince them that uh, I had nervous diarrhoea um, and also that I had this sort of obsession that I couldn't stand people to smell my shit. <laughs> so I'd go into the lab... Light one uh, up. Uh, ..smoke as much as I could possibly get down me um, and then come tottering out in a sort of cloud of smoke and an air freshener yeah and then go straight on the stage um, <laughs> and they were also i'd come from the footlights and from review and they'd come from being actors who'd been to acting school and who'd learned about beats and right there's three beats now now matt it's your t you know but listen you came in a little early on that you came in on two and a half beats so you you kind of messed up jean's laugh so you need uh, so okay. no room for improvisation very rigid very formulaic it was a formulaic way of going at it um and i was the wild card no doubt but it was but it was still great it was yeah still yeah great, you know and then i married my agent 
Um, and so then from 64, for those next, I was still a medical student, but I was doing things like um, uh, doing a lot of TV adverts and stuff like that. So What, I, voiceover or on no, screen? No, on screen, yeah. stuff like that. Um, so I was going around, I was living in Soho. The place uh, to be at that point yeah, in time, it was, right? It was great. And, and, um, Paint a picture for us of Soho at that point in well, time, mid-60s. where I lived was, interesting enough, the block itself called Ingustry Buildings, which has been knocked down now. And it was, um, you've heard of the Peabody Estates? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, like the Cadbury's and the Roundtrees. It was a bunch of, of, of philanthropists who wanted to provide uh, reasonable accommodation for lower-middle-class people. And this was a group uh, who called themselves the Metropolitan Association for the Improvement of Dwellings for the Industrious Classes. And so Python, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Dickens and Kingsley were on the, were on the, uh, on the board. And they built this block, and it was the first block of its kind for the industrious classes with water closets in it. I mean, it had lavies, so you didn't pour your piss and your shit out into the street, which is what happened in Soho at that time. And this was built about the same time as this, in the 1860s. Um, So it was a fantastic old block. Um, Lived above an old lady who who reveled in the name of Edith Hempfield, um, and lived underneath the, the, the wash room, which is like something from, well, from Dickens. Yeah, yeah, literally. yeah. You know, it had five coppers with fires underneath them for you to go and do your communal washing and hanging communal washing out on the line on the roof of this, this old block. And it was right behind the police section house on Broadwick Street. So, life in All Soho. All manner of then. characters. I stayed, I lived in three places in Soho, two places in Soho, one in Covent Garden. Every one of those places, the previous tenant had been a hooker. Uh, in, in industry buildings, it was actually four hookers that were run by a bloke. And it's a tiny flat. And how they managed to, when they were busted, uh, they had 64 geezers had gone through there in three hours. <laughs> you know, and you think, I don't, don't know how I did it. <laughs> um, so I was right off uh, Berwick Street and I, my first flat was in Berwick Street. Uh, and the hooker there specialised um, and she was known as Jam Jar because there was this old bloke who would come, one of her clients, and he'd go to the little Jewish uh, grocers at the end of Berwick Street and he'd buy a bottle of strawberry jam and say, oh, there he goes, old Jam Jar. And he'd go off and go to number 17, go up on the first floor. And apparently uh, she would strip and, and open his bottle of jam for him and give him a teaspoon and he'd flick her with bits of jam obviously having a wank <laughs> yeah 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 and, and that was his that, <laughs> that was his, his that was his thing <laughs> and then in Covent Garden I was in 138 a long acre uh, and that was I got busted by the coppers for nicking a pint of milk once and uh, when I was arraigned in Bow Street address 138 well, what floor oh Black Rita Black Rita oh yeah Black Rita murdered in her bed oh no so Soho was... Down and dirty, right? It was down and dirty, yeah, it was. Well, it was always a, a, a dirty place, you know. And, uh, great, you know, great. Gangsters, thieves, pimps, yeah, 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 musicians, yeah, artists. Yeah. Hookers, all just uh, strip joints, uh, dirty books. Coexisting. Uh, yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah. All of that. Um, and really good. I, mean, I, I really liked it. it was very popular when you lived in Soho because all your mates knew they could pop in and have a split from a cup of tea. Uh, anytime they got into the West End 
so you you realize why you were so popular when do you start integrating yourself within the sort of countercultural drug movement in london then and would that be the right way to describe it well i was still a medical student through 66 and 67 but um I got to know quite a lot of people. Uh, for instance, the Who I got to know because um, I assisted at Keith Moon's hernia operation. He he got he gave himself a you know, bang in the drums. Oh, all me hernia, and and um, I just helped one of the surgeons I worked for to do that, and met Keith that way, and therefore met the whole of the Who, and met Townsend, and got on really well with them. Uh, and later, subsequently, when I was writing songs, uh, Townsend helped me to do um, a demo set of demos to uh, record to record yeah, yeah but this is jumping ahead yeah um, so you go about sort of town and have nights out with them would you yeah with, with Moon yes yeah and I go out and, and spend time with him up in Hampstead uh, in Highgate yeah the flat lovely bloke you know loved boozing you know he was a big boozer was he always that larger than life yeah character that Absolutely. people yeah. now yeah. know and love yeah He's always uh, flipping into playing Robert Newton as, as Long John Silver. That was his favourite uh, alter ego. His bit. Yeah. That was Tell me bit. about a typical night out with Keith then. Does one spring to mind? Well, he's, uh, no, no, just drink. Yeah. Drink and Keith being, being on, Off you know, the wall. rolling on it and roaring. He roared. He was a roarer. But I liked him. And I don't like, uh, particularly like drunken roarers. But uh, Keith, I did. I think he had a good heart. Um, Pete, uh, hard man. I liked him a lot, but you wouldn't cross him. And um, very thoughtful. But um, a difficult bloke, very difficult. Well, they used to fight on stage, right, him and Daltrey? Oh, yeah. Because Roger's obviously quite small, but I guess he could handle himself. Oh, Roger's a sweet, you know, sweet bloke. He's got about three... No, I mustn't say. <laughs> Should we do another tea? Yeah. Is there enough for another there round? sure is. And were the stones on the scene at this point as well? Uh, they were. Um, not for me particularly. I was a, big, I was a Beatles man. You know? Right. Uh, um, uh, same with Elvis. You know, I didn't really like Elvis that much when he was out at first. I mean, I'd still put loads of brew cream on and try and look like him. Um, but but I didn't particularly like him. Um, looking back on him, you see how phenomenal he was. As a country as, singer, a soul as, singer, as, as, everything, as, right? As Elvis. Yeah. As, as an, um, a mix, as a white boy singing the blues, you yeah. know, and R&B and, 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 and absorbing those attitudes and, and meeting Sam Phillips and meeting... Um, Bill Black and Scotty Moore, you know, and just, I mean, those records were just phenomenal. But I didn't realise at the time how phenomenal they were. Um, and the same with the Stones. Because I was Beatles man, Stones now is just blues, you know. And I was never really into the blues as much as I was into R&B. So in my last year in Cambridge, let's go, going back, I was running a PX scam where I had a mate, Gary, who was very, very hip, black airman, American airman. And he'd pick up all the PX tabs from the blokes who didn't want booze or fags. And then he'd, he'd buy all the booze and fags. And then he'd come in with a huge sack load and I'd buy them off him. At um, discount rate. Yeah, I'd, yeah, for a quid, I'd get a 40-ounce bottle of vodka or, or bourbon or a 200-pack of uh, Kent or Pall Mall 
or Marlboro, you know, American fags. Yeah. Which, of course, were a premium. A luxury that at that point, yeah. Yeah, man, yeah. Um, and I'd sell them for 30 bob. So I, That's a good business, markup, that is, Hank. Good markup, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I was happy, Gary was happy. And then Friday nights, we'd go down, we'd drive down together, and he was so hip. Uh, he wore these shades that the, the side arms didn't go down round his ears. They went straight back. And just that, in 1961, 1962, that was fantastically hip, that you've got things that go A like statement that, of yeah. style. Gary, you're the man. And um, we we drive down to London and we go to the Flamingo, which you've come across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because at that time, the nightlife in London was fairly... There was not much of it. Uh, there were basically, I think, three all-nighters. There was the Flamingo, there was Count Suckle's Q Club, and there was the Roaring Twenties, and that was it. And I was a Flamingo man, so it was just phenomenal. You go down, midnight it starts, and goes through till six o'clock, two bands. I mean, these guys, it, I mean, it's all down to amphetamine. Yeah, of course. Amphetamine. The mod drug of choice. Yeah, it was, it was, the, whole, the whole scene was, was uh, speed pills. Um, and I was well into speed by that time. That was my was that the progression for you? Was it weed speed? No, speed weed. Speed weed. Speed was the first drug, because it was the the again we're going back. Uh, Mother's little helper. Yeah, was um, uh, because GPs would prescribe it to your mum, so it must be all right, you know. And then my second Saturday job was in uh, when I was sixteen, was in a chemist shop in Parkway in Camden, around the corner from where I lived. Uh, and there you'd have Winchester bottles of dexamphetamine sulfate, five milligrams. Bottles that big? Yeah. Wow. And like sweetie bottles. Yeah. Not locked, not in a cupboard, you know, you just, you undo it. So at the end of the day, you undo the thing, just to shove them in your pocket, your pocket full, and uh, off you go. And I drop 10 and, <laughs> and, and jump on my bike and cycle from Camden Town to Hearn Hill in about 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying. Frothing at the mouth, <laughs> and never did score with Caroline because I was frothing too much by the time I got to her. Um, so no, speed was the first drug. I didn't get to weed till Cambridge, till till um, later in '59. And so, you know, Keith, you're spending some time. So, with so him. anyway, finishing with with Flamingo, yeah, that was hugely formative. The R and B thing for me that was my that was my music. It was fantastic, and you'd have these house bands like Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. I say, yeah, yeah. Um, come on, man! They were stunning bands. Uh, Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh. Out of Time is it? Ooh, baby. Oh, this is all before Out of Time. Yeah, but that was the guy who did that hit, that right? Was the guy yeah, who did that. Yeah. Um, and then they'd have some. Uh, I saw Solomon Burke there, who was wow. unbelievable. You know. And it's a sweaty thing, and it's run by a couple of gangsters called the Gunnell Brothers. Always brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rick Gunnell. And he'd, he'd come on the stage and he'd say, Shut! Stop the band in, in, in mid-play and say, All right, lads, meet the bands outside. Get clean. Scarpa. Yeah, you know. And, uh, and you'd hear this sort of rattling noise as everybody's pockets empty and they drop all their pills onto the ground. And then a line of... A bedraggled line of coppers, uniformed coppers, would walk in and sort of snake through the crowd, going crunch, 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 <laughs> crunch, crunch <laughs> over the pills. Uh, 
and they take some poor fucker, you know, and arrest one guy and take him out, and then it would all go back to normal. And it was basically American servicemen, black dudes, some hookers, and then spotty Herberts like me, you know, who'd, who'd, who'd got on to R&B and just loved it. And, and, and that with the Ray Charles, that was my life, which is why I didn't like country music at all at that time. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Did you have a song out in the late 60s? That yes. That was a I had hit, two, right? It was I had in the- two songs. I had... Um, uh, one song, I, uh, my first song that came out was with, sung by an actress called Sarah Miles because she was the girlfriend of uh, my wife's agency partner. Okay. A guy called Willie Donaldson who became quite infamous on the, on the uh, West End circuit. And, um, oh, it's pretty bad. It was, it was in the uh, Bossa Nova <laughs> period. And, and God bless Sarah, she can't sing for Toffee. And it was it was a pretty bad song, yeah, so we draw we draw a veil over that one. And the next one <coughs> was by that time Jabberwocky, was it? Jabberwocky, yeah. Well, that was because I knew Pete Jenner, who was an old mate of mine from Cambridge. In fact, we did share our first spliff together. So uh, so and when we went back even long before that, when we were sixteen, and he was stepping up with a girl who lived down my street. So I knew him even before university. <coughs> And so I knew all the Black Hill Enterprises people, and and uh, so when they had the Floyd as their as their uh, group, uh, I knew all the Floyd at that time, and I knew Sid at that time. What was he like? Well, he was he was out of it, you know. He was um, resolutely taking acid every day, so he was tripping. Have you got a parrot? No, we've got. Uh, a bird clock. Oh, that oh, was a bird a, clock. Right, it was a yeah. clock. Yeah, amazing. Uh, that, that's yeah, that's a, a screech owl. I think is what you got for five o'clock. Um, wow. So, uh, so, so what, knowing, cast the characters. A, a lot of that was uh, the connections with with um, what was then Black Hill Enterprises. Once I became his client as well, uh, it became Sincere Management as part of the kind of Hank Empire. Um, but yeah, I knew the Floyd well. Um, I got no family well. I travelled around Germany with family as the family doctor. 
which was uh, and now when you're the family doctor or any rock doctor are you prescribing medicine or are you just there to alleviate ailments i mean what's the what's the (laughs) that was that was a a 10-day tour of germany it was just for the crack right you know so are you are you pushing drugs on bands are you selling drugs or are you no no no, absolutely not no um well the only drug i pushed was was marijuana got it um because until 1973 doctors could still prescribe marijuana they could prescribe cannabis in extract or tincture form and we, I'd signed in 67 uh, the infamous ad in The Times. Yeah, Ian yeah. was telling me about this. Yeah, the law Big against... The law, spread, right? Full page, yeah. paid for by the Beatles. Uh, the law against marijuana is uh, immoral in principle and unworkable in practice. Signed. We the undersigned. Da, da, da. And all sorts of people, Nobel Prize winners, had Crick and Watson were up there. Um some people who've since reneged and said no no no, i wouldn't sign it now um and me i was one of the people and the beatles of course 67 it's still illegal it is it's and everyone's on it at that point of a certain age yes everyone's on it of a certain age but you very much can get busted and if you get busted you can be sent to jail and it was still a big thing uh but it was very much a statement oh i don't drink alcohol no, no, not that, that filthy stuff. My body, my temple. Um, so the prescribing of the cannabis came in 69. By that time I had um, I qualified late 67. So 68, 69, there was this friend of mine, uh, Bernie Greenwood, who I saw yesterday, lovely man, who's also a musician as well as a doctor, and one of the few doctors I like. I didn't like doctors much. Kind of different worlds, I yeah. imagine. And you've got one. Bernie each. played with Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds. You know, he played sax with the Thunderbirds, um, and he had a friend called Ian Dunbar, who was had set up a general practice in in Labrick Grove because he discovered that you could prescribe cannabis and he was interested in helping people off uh, heroin. And he'd also discovered a way of getting people off heroin very easily over the five days without any cold turkey, without any pain, without the flu symptoms. Um, and you get off it, it's not a problem. And it's very simple. And I'm amazed it hasn't been used much since then because it's based on very high doses of uh, an anti-diarrhea pill called Lomatil, which is for travellers' diarrhea. So you're essentially flushing out the toxins. You're essentially replacing it with a synthetic opiate, so that the opiate cravings are replaced by these huge amounts of these little pills that you're taking, and which over the five days you cut down from 48 to 36 to 24 to 12 to 6, you know. Um, And people got off. So I had, as a consequence, through Ian, I had a couple of... uh, junkie musicians who would come and I'd help them off smack so that's re- really where in the rock and roll doctor tag well the rock and roll finds definition ha- happened before that because I was I was adamant I wasn't going to give you any uppers or downers or anything like that you want uppers and downers you go and see the straight guys in Wimpole Street with the three piece suits they'll give you bucket loads of it I don't want to be a grocer because at the same time I was getting into uh, homeopathy and, and, and I liked being a doctor. I still do, you know. And, and, and I did not want to be a grocer. And I did. You, you want to take speed? You're a silly fucker. That's up to you, you know. 
um, people would come to me, or rock and rollers would come and say, oh, yeah, oh, I've got a really sore nose, it's all bleeding, you know. I'd say, yeah, well, do you take coke? <laughs> yeah, man. I'd say, well, stupid sod, that's why your nose is bleeding. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you know. um, but cannabis, it was a political action. You know, this should not be illegal, therefore I will prescribe it. And also, we we weren't getting paid by the NHS. We we waited for seven months for our first cheque for the NHS, which came after seven months for £11. So we were, we were financing ourselves, charging... Oh... Action go. out in the streets, friends. <laughs> Charging <laughs> two, two quid a time for a prescription for, for cannabis. That was fine. And I felt good about that. And other, other than that, I was, I was doing homeopathy. And that was the time when I started working with the Queen's physician, who was a wonderful woman called Marjorie Blackie. Um, and she was the dean of the Faculty of Homeopathy, and she was a great teacher, and she was an inspirational doctor. And, and she treated the royal family. And the reason that homeopathy is on the national health still, although they're finally trying to prize it away, saying, look, it, it doesn't work, you know, it's all complete nonsense. Why, why are you using your taxes for this rubbish? Um, the reason it was on the national health was her predecessor, Sir John Weir, was King George VI's doctor. And George VI even had a racehorse named after his favourite remedy, Hypericum. He had a racehorse called Hypericum. And apparently George VI had nerve pains and Hypericum, which is St John's worked, is very good for nerve pain. So uh, so Blackie was another world. It was it, it was great, um, but I didn't really belong in that world. You know, it was, very, it was down in South Kent, very aristocratic. She introduced me, uh, so I would learn osteopathy. To uh, I had to go up to Wimpole Street to meet Guy Beecham. Um, who had a sort of Dr Kildare white jacket on and when I went to meet Guy Beecham the, say, on, uh, the other guy waiting at his door was um, the saint Roger Moore really? Roger Moore's standing there and he's coming to see Guy so th- those were his sort of clear that's the circles you're moving yeah, in that's, that's, that's not, it, it's not my cup of tea you know uh, and whenever royalty would come in, um, Blackie would hide me downstairs with the servants. She'd say, oh, Doctor, there's, uh, there's um, Prince uh, William's coming in, and uh, if you go down to see uh, Annie, uh, she's got some chicken in aspic, I'm sure that'll suit you. you just pop down there for a moment. Be all right. Um, no, was- so she welcomed you in, that's interesting. She welcomed you in and gave you that opportunity, but was aware that perhaps it would be frowned upon by people of that well I had level of, to hear yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a hippie and so yeah. you know that, that was not the right time for, for that sort of thing no. and also her partner, her life partner it was great because Blackie was uh, one of those wonderful old style um, upper middle class uh, lesbians and she was very sweet and she loved me and we got on really well but her loved one who reveled in the mega feminine name of Musette Majondi, who was extremely masculine um, and had worked for years in the scout movement um, and was like a colonel. <laughs> and Musette didn't like me, was very deeply suspicious of me. And the first time I met Musette, we're sitting at a banquet table and, and she'd heard of my, my hippie, obviously saw it, and obviously 
this young doctor who's coming and working with my loved one. And where, where do you find them? She said, she leaned over the table. Where do you find them, these hippie chaps? Oh, uh, I, I, I couldn't resist staying in her mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, uh, oh, uh, well, you know, here and there, street sort of thing, gutter, wheelbarrow, <laughs> go around, <laughs> pop them in the barrow, take them over. Oh, jolly good. <laughs> but she she was deeply suspicious of me, and I think finally I got kind of prized away. I went over, I got a job, um, and this was at the height of the uh, being the rock and roll doctor. So a rock and roll doctor in, in the sense that rock and rollers would come to see me because I had long hair, yeah. and they could say things freely to me, and they could say, yeah, I'd, I'd really like some uppers, and I could say, well, I'm not going to give you any, you know. What I might give you is odd little white powders that aren't coke, but are homeopathic remedies, because I'm much more interested in people getting better than that. And what you do is your business, unless it impacts on your health, in which case you call me. Um, <clears throat> and do you meet Graham through Keith? Is that how that... Yeah, that's how... Uh, Keith, um, because I'd seen Keith for his... Um, for Marlon, when Marlon was a little baby. Uh, I just saw Marlon for minor illness and so that's where Keith got me on his map and when Graham's wife was feeling poorly he sent them up to me and at the, the time and I didn't know really I hadn't clocked who Graham Parsons was because I was a huge Birds fan but and here was the, the irony too when they made Sweetheart the Rodeo I thought it was shite I and really, that's their country album and that's yeah, their yeah. country yeah. album I really didn't like it because I'd loved all the harmonies and, and the previous album. And the psychedelic was, stuff. That's right. Younger Than Yesterday was deeply psychedelic and acid, not just acid-tinged, it was completely washed yeah. in acid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so suddenly they go from that to country. I couldn't be doing with it. So um, So what changed? Well, what changes? Graham comes in um, uh, with his wife and uh, I say hi and... and as he comes in, on my record player, I've got a guy called Fred Neal. Do you know Fred Neal? I don't think so, no. Okay. He, the most famous song he wrote was Everybody's Talking, which was a theme from Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Harry, Harry Nielsen, Harry Nielsen did, yeah. wrote it, but okay. Harry Nielsen sang it. He didn't write it. Okay, Freddie Neal wrote I'm with it. you. And Freddie Neal was a stalwart of the New York Greenwich Village scene. The um, Carol King sort of songwriting world. No. No? No, he'd be more... Have you ever come across Karen Dalton? No, I don't ah, think so. you should listen to Karen Dalton. Yeah. Extraordinary. Um, one of those people who... One of the reasons Ray Charles had such a sort of raw voice is the heroine. Now, do not get me wrong. I hate heroin with a passion, and I hate what I've seen it do to people, and I hate the friends who died on it, you know? Um, but it does something to the voice. And if you listen to heroin singers... Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. The rawness of that voice, the, the, the emotion is just there. Ray Charles, Joe Cocker, you know, Graham. Even Kurt Cobain up to Kurt more Cobain. present times, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't recommend it as a vocal treatment, but, but it, it does do something. Um, Keith, how he, how he managed to take all that amount. Um, anyway, so Graham comes in, and Fred Neal was also a junkie living in New York, and uh, as is Karen Dalton too, uh, she, although she's died as Fred has done too and Fred would sing these long rambling songs and play 12 string guitar so he's basically a folky but he wrote these quite nice songs the other great song he wrote 
that people have covered is called the dolphins. I've been searching for the dolphin sea. And basically, he'd go move down to Florida and clean up and, and get healthy again. Then he'd go back to Greenwich Village and get unhealthy. Uh, and then the cycle repeats. Cycle go round and round and round. Anyway, you haven't heard of Fred Neal. The folks out there in podcast land haven't heard of Fred Neal. Uh, nobody had heard of Fred Neal. So when you listen to somebody like that, and you'll have people like that who are your personal favourite, when you meet somebody who knows one of your personal obscure favourites, you're kind of conflicted about it, aren't you? You know, you're you're very happy that somebody else knows about them, but there's an element of the secrets it, out the bag. Y- yeah, get off my land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Graham comes and he says, hey, that's Freddie Neal. How do you know Fred Neal? Well, no, man, I played with him. You, you played with Fred Neal? And he says, yeah, uh, I'm Grandpa. And then it, 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 Penny dropped. Jeez, right, you're Grandpa. Oh, OK, fair enough. So while I'm talking to Gretchen, just behind a curtain, Graham picks my guitar up. And he sings, uh, the jukebox is playing a honky-tonk song. One more I keep saying, and then I'll go home. What good will it do me? I know what I'll find. An empty bottle, a broken heart, and you're still on my mind. And bang, that was, that was my road to Damascus. That was it. I could suddenly see, because being a soul man all my life, I could suddenly see the soul in country music. You made that connection. It was, yeah. I hadn't made it when Ray had done his very kind of syrupy arrangements. I hadn't seen that what he saw was the soul in it. Uh, And there, with this stripped-down, just voice and guitar singing this George Jones song, um, classic country, honky-tonk, I suddenly saw it, and that was it. And, and it was great because I can now write songs in that in that idiom. I can do that. I can I can inhabit it. It can inhabit me. It was just like a real whack. And then that's when all the hats come into play. I presume one of the best hat in, collections yeah. I've ever seen. Oh, and there's Hank. boxes in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess for you, the '80s was really when it kicked off musically, right? That's when you're well, the '70s, but the '70s wasn't in the public because um, in '76. Um, my girlfriend went off and married um, my flatmate while I was in America. Oh, no. uh, and, and, you know, and so I suffered and the world is against me and they're all bastards and all that. But Which that was, gives you the tools to write well, that kind of music, tools, right? Well, I had another uh, flick because, of course, you are to do with that happening. And I was stupid enough not to realise that she had come over to America and presented me with the ultimatum, do you really not want to have kids? Because I really want to have kids. Uh, and at that stage, in 74, 75, 76, if I'd really had kids, I would have to stop buggering about with any musical dreams and become a GP and get depressed and feel, you know, penned in. Yeah. And didn't want that. Um, no, I don't want to have kids. So she goes back and she marries Barry, who does want to have kids. So, of course, I was everything to do with the whole thing. But you don't admit that to yourself at the time. Forward, I'm in Suffolk, suffering, you know, because the world is against me. Yeah. Oh, oh. I'm sitting in a pub in a place called Wangford. Sitting in a pub in a place called Wangford, got a pint, and I just, just about drink, and then I suddenly think, fuck me, Hank Wangford. What a great name. 
for the ultimate country wanker <laughs> who thinks the world is against him and doesn't realise that he's the twat who caused the whole thing. Bang! A month later, I'm going on a stage saying to myself, I can't go on a stage with a name as monumentally stupid as Hank Wankford. Uh, and did my first gig in Bungie in a May horse fair, which is a mixture of hippies, uh, diddy coys, travellers, horses, dogs, you know, um, and in a in a marquee, in a, in a tent, with just a kind of pulled together band. Didn't even have a bass player, you know. Had a drummer, had two can can girls, um, and 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 did the gig, and that was it. And there was a bass player in the audience, and he joined, and we formed a band. So from '76, we had the Hank Wangford band from '76 to '78. Uh, and had a great time. And it was basically sort of a hippie country band. Yeah. You know, but doing original material. Now, in the 70s, there were no country bands doing original material. Especially were, in the UK. Yeah, they're cover bands. So whenever we'd play country and western clubs, oh, it was terrible, you know, because they all want to hear... The uh, standards. Yeah. Crystal Chandelier was the big one. Oh, the crystal chandelier. Oh, do me. Oh, no. And they'd have shootouts, and, and God bless them. That's what the, the folk want to do, you know. And, and they, but it's not my cup of tea. Um, so we kind of rode that. We finally we started coming, and we did pubs, and we did our own gigs, and we came into London. So by this time, it's like um, seventy-seven, moving into seventy-eight, and it's still punk. Yeah, as punks just you know, exploded everywhere. So our, one of our first London gigs was supporting the Rosillos. Yeah, I love that band. Who, Scottish band, yeah, right? Yeah, Top Scottish of the Pops. Kind of cartoony kind yeah, yeah, yeah. of punk band. Yeah. And we played at the Nashville Rooms with them. And it was a great gig. It was a great gig. And we had uh, our woman singer also played sax. And she was very ballsy. She was great. Susie. And we called her Susie Cruz, the Vera Lynn of the North Sea oil fields. And she would, she was a stripper as well. Amazing. You know, yeah. And she would play, she'd honk away on, on the sax. And, you know, it was tough. And we had this full punk audience who were saying, ah, oh, fucking bollocks, and, you know, gobbing and do doing all that. And uh, uh, and apparently they came round to us afterwards and they said, oh, fucking great. They said, my mate here was shouting bollocks. So I told him, shut the fuck up. They're great. You listen to them. Because it was coming from that same place with the same spirit and energy. And, and well, we had a good, yeah, we had energy. At that time, I wanted to play country music with bollocks. I wanted yeah. to play you know, loud drums. I don't want to do that now, you know, but at that time. And so the drum was really thrashing it out. So, yeah, it was getting through to them. And it had energy. And they would say, yeah, yeah, all right. So that, that was still the semi-pro band. And then we broke up then. And then that's when I met... We were, so country journalists had seen us as the, the, the white hope of British country music because we were the only originals. Um, and BJ Cole was one of the people, the pedal steel guitar player, uh, who saw us. And he'd recently been given a record label by United Artists that he could start recording English country bands. So obviously we were right first there. First in line. Or, or I was right there and we were first in line. And he had Cowpie Records. And when the band broke up, I then worked with BJ and he, with all his connections, got a fantastic band together uh, to record the first album. Uh, and remnants of that band then formed the first professional Hank Wangford band. So from 1980 onwards, that's when we were uh, doing that. 
and it must have been so out of step with what was going on with new wave and two-tone and synth pop and all of that so it must have been incredibly fresh for people to kind of witness this well it was um, but that's one of the things of, of, of that i love um and that might come from i never thought of it that way it's fairly obvious from the sort of parallel life of of a teenager you know you're be, you're an outsider yeah um, i quite like being outside I qu- and i quite like things that are on the edge and i qu- definitely like things that other people don't like because mm-hmm. there's got to be something good in there yeah so country music for instance and I if it was just shit people, they wouldn't pay any mind yeah, right yeah yeah i was one of the people who didn't like it but when i discovered what it was the stories it tells the great musicians it's got the wonderful ironies in it you know i mean the the the, the first irony of country music is in rock and roll rock and roll is so predictable rock and rollers have got to be dissipated they've got to take loads of drugs they've got to shag themselves silly they've got to be antichrist you know and all that and all that country musicians have got to be god-fearing family loving straight as a die conservative conservative and all that but behind the mask they're wilder than the rock and rollers <laughs> they're taking more drugs they're crazier they're you know and so yeah, yeah. you've immediately got this whole interesting misconception and and tension within within the people there you know willie nelson's great about it talking oh he's amazing he, he, he understands about that um so all of that would drive me not just because it's very emotional and it's very true to emotions and because you can write songs about anything, uh, but because it was outside, was in itself attractive, because people reviled it. Right, I'll play it. Outside or out. Even now still, you know, there was a Southwold Festival, little festival, uh, they wanted us to, or a friend really wants to do a gig there, but there was the committee, and the committee discussed... And, I don't know, country and western. Oh, no, I don't know. And he's saying, but Hank, it's different. It's not what you. No, country. They couldn't. They couldn't hack it. So even now, against the grain. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, I reckon we should maybe wrap it up soon. That's uh, just past the hour, oh, and oh, yeah. there's so much. We should do a part two sometime, Hank, and get into. Well, I mean, because there's so many strands to your life and your career. Um, Let's maybe end on the benefit gig in the 80s, 84, was it, with Billy, mm. and your stage got stormed by some right-wing skinheads, Before that, right? Matt, I just want to, as a trailer for part two... Okay. ...is I would love to talk with you about Hawaiian music. Fantastic. Because Hawaiian music is another thing which is misunderstood, uh, and Hawaiian music and Hawaiian culture uh, is massive... Um, and in the early 20th century, two things happened. One is in, 19, in, in 1907, some Hawaiian Rough Riders, cowboys, because there's a huge Hawaiian cowboy culture, and I really want to make a film about the Hawaiian cow. I've been saying this. Mrs. Wangford must be bored. I've been, for, you know, for 15 years I've been going on about making a film about the Hawaiian a, cowboys. Like a people fictional don't know. feature film or a documentary uh, film? Documentary. documentary film. People don't know that there is a Hawaiian cowboy culture. Um, and they're fantastic cowboys. And in 1907, three of them go over uh, and they wipe the floor at the National American Rodeo that they, they had in San Francisco. Uh, wipe the floor. And, and uh, that was even being given three horses that were unbroken and were crap. 
and they say thank you sir thank you very much so they go off break the horse and train it in 24 hours and they come in uh, and then in bulldogging they wipe the floor they got first second and fifth wow and everybody goes what because they thought they were just you know, country hicks from from a polynesian island get out of here you know they you can't so that was the first thing in 1915 they had a huge world fair uh, which celebrated uh, Polynesian and Pacific culture. So the Hawaiian music came over then, and that smacked America in the face. And Hawaiian music is, in fact, Hawaiian cowboy music. The ukulele is a cowboy instrument. Uh, the guitar was brought over in 1832 by three Mexican cowboys who were brought in to teach the Hawaiians how to be cowboys because they had been given some wild cattle in 1800 and some wild horses in 1810. And so suddenly they had 200,000 wild cattle and 80,000 wild horses. What were they going to do with them? So the Mexicans come over with guitars. So that was the beginning of Hawaiian music. The ukulele came in the end of the 19th century through Portuguese cabinet makers and a thing called the braguinha, which is a small four-string instrument. But anyway... Um, Fascinating stuff. When, in, 20, in 1915, the, uh, uh, the World Fair there, the Hawaiian effect was so massive uh, that that affected... American popular music. The whole crooning style comes from Hawaii. Use of falsetto comes from Hawaii. Uh, uh, not just the pedal steel, but, but stylistically, it was enormously influential. And it hasn't been given the credit. So that's that's a trailer. For I'd love to talk to you. I love it. What a professional as well. You can yeah, see yeah. you've got that broadcasting angle. You give uh, them a little yeah. taste of what <laughs> to expect taste. next time. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you oh, more yeah. about your medicine <clears throat> career and how that evolved as well, because I was reading some fascinating stuff about somewhere in Transylvania, was it, that you set up like some really great work. So let's, let's definitely we'll revisit we'll and that, do yeah. a part two yeah. and maybe end it with um, 1984, the GLC Benefit Show, yeah. you and Billy on stage. Yeah. What happened? Well, um, it was in July 1984, it was a celebration, uh, the GLC, uh, which uh, you folks out there won't know who the GLC were. We used to call them the Good Loud Country Organisation. It's the Great London Council, and that was, that was when Ken Livingstone was in his pomp. My dad used to work for them. Did he? Yeah, yeah, straight out of university. That was one of his first go. jobs, yeah. Well, they were in County Hall, right opposite the Houses of Parliament. So they had this big... Uh, day this saturday uh right by county hall and they had a stage and everything and two stages and it was to celebrate in the middle of the minor strike you know because the minor strike was a war there was not you know no two ways about it so as a little rest in the middle of the war we had this and there was a bunch of um uh, bad boys who were going around and i didn't know this and i've got a picture somewhere uh, oh, it's up in the bathroom, actually, of, of, of Hank standing in between Arthur Scargill and Ken Livingston. Uh, I think I saw it when I yeah, was just using right. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all three of us in the sun. You've got the big cowboy hat on, right? I've got the big cowboy hat And then the T-shirt with the cowboy. Yeah, yeah cowboy face yeah, yeah. and a pink suit. <laughs> and, and, and if you look carefully, Scargill's got this sort of weird glow around his head, this kind of unearthly sort of uh, halo. Um <laughs> And all in the world was great, and we were looking forward to it. There's 20,000 people out there. And we go on the stage, uh, and there was a bunch of uh, skinheads 
who were who were pissed up, who, who had big cider bottles, and who had apparently already trashed the Redskins, who were uh, another band round the corner on the smaller stage, and uh, but nobody told us, and nobody was really aware, and there was no security. So we started our set, and about two numbers into the set, these boys just jump on the stage, push us away, grab the microphone, and start shouting, "See Kyle, see Kyle, see Kyle!" Giving it that, um, and waving their cider bottles, and smashing the guitars and stuff like that. And um, luckily, not none of us got seriously damaged. BJ got a guitar across his face. So he got cut across his lips. That was the worst, but no fingers were broken, no nothing like that. So that's all being trashed. And the crowd go into just shock. People don't immediately surge forward to stop it. They just they can't believe what they're seeing. Until a raster um, came round from behind and he jumped over the, the, the drum kit and he had full locks, but also had a bicycle chain in his hand. So he had the locks and the bicycle chain. You didn't know which was which. And he just ran, ran at them. And they saw this geezer and jumped off the stage into the crowd. And then the crowd dealt with them and smacked them up and broke their arms. And uh, all of which I full think... Full-scale riot. Full-scale riot, you know. And, uh, and the, the bad boys end up in hospital, I'm sure, felt like martyrs, you know. And they were very pleased to get their arms broken. Um, and it was all over fairly quickly. But yeah, no police, no, no, no security, no nothing. But I got a song out of it. And what's the song called? Called On the Line. Nice. Well, no I'll one end knows the show you when you're on the line. A little bit of that. Yeah. And was he in there oh, that yeah, day I'll with give, you? I'll give you a copy of that. I'd love to. Yeah. 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 Ian was very much. Like, yeah. He'll tell you about it. <laughs> um, so, what have you got going on in terms of live shows or releases or anything like that? Is there? And there's well, a few books that you've written over the years, which people can investigate. Yeah, well, we won't tell you anything about more. the books yet until we meet Matt again. Return for part deux. Return for part deux. Lovely. Um, live shows. Have you got anything in live the diary? Shows, there, there's a few. It's 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 quiet at the moment um, because I was sick last year and. Um, I hadn't booked enough stuff in, but that's fine because I go over to Ireland a lot. And, and the one bit of property, because I told you we, when we started talking that this doesn't belong to me. This yep. is a, I'm a tenant and very happy. Uh, but I've got a little house right on the seashore in Connemara, right on, on the west coast of Ireland. Beautiful. And that's where I write. Um, so I can't wait to get back. And I've got two thirds of a new album but I want to have one and a half new albums that I can choose from and then just... That's the way to do it, right? Yeah, and then cut down. The so best I, of the I, best. I need another half dozen songs. Um, they'll come, but it's, it's hard, hard, hard work. And that's what's uh, on my mind at the moment, is to get that done, because they've got some nice new songs. And the well's still very much full, is it? You still find inspiration and... Some days you don't know. I mean, you must know that. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. You know where you think. You've got to work at it. Nothing is going to come ever again. I'm never going to write a song. Oh, no, it'll be, a, it'll be a good week. I can be sitting in my room and trying and trying and nothing but little dribbly bits of rubbish come. Um, but you need an inspiration. You need a proper inspiration, a proper thing that you're properly going to write off. And it can be something tiny. It doesn't matter. The last big one was... Um, sitting in there and getting desperate oh, I'll never write another song I'm banging my head against the wall uh, 
and uh, Mrs. Wangford comes in and says, come round, come round the back, look, there's a hole in the roof. So I go, rrr, rrr, look, there's a hole in the roof. The wind had whipped a tile away up by the chimney breast. So they think, oh, there's a hole in the roof where the rain gets in. There's a hole in my heart where the pain sets in. Got it. Just a line, right? And then from there, line, yeah, so then yeah. It's a song about holes, holes in life. Hank, shake my hand. It was a real pleasure. Thanks okay, so much mate. for inviting me over. Thank you for asking. Really enjoyed talking to you. And I definitely look forward to another round of this. Okay. As it seems like there's plenty more uh, stories to share. There's a few. Thank you very much for your time, mate. That's a pleasure. Now back in the summer of 84... Try to help the miners win their war Came to do a gig for the GLC That's a good, loud country for you and me Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.